0: Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living.
1: Let's pray. Lord God, we are well aware of our fallenness, our brokenness, and just how comprehensive the effects of sin are in this world and in ourselves. God, we may feel that physically. We may feel that mentally. We may feel that emotionally. But we certainly feel that spiritually. And so, God, we give thanks that the promise you gave in the midst of also giving a curse has been fulfilled in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That Lord Jesus, you have crushed the serpent. And you have restored us, redeemed us from the effects of sin. And so God, we adore you for this truth. Rooted in the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ, that we are forgiven of our sin, of our sins, and we are empowered by your grace to fight sin in our life. That God, many of us in this room have called on you to be our Lord and Savior. And so, God, I pray that you would teach us tonight what it means to call you Lord and Savior. That, God, we would see from a, uh, a text that can be confusing and hard to interpret just how important it is that we submit to the authority over us, namely Jesus Christ. So, God, would you teach us by way of your word, preach to our souls tonight that we would see your way as greater and higher than our own and that we would lean into it by your grace. God, would you be with us tonight? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a show on TV that has become pretty popular in the last couple of years. It's called The Handmaid's Tale. You've probably seen protesters dressed up like some of the characters on the show with these long red dresses, perhaps a matching red cloak and a large white bonnet. Uh, The show, which I don't recommend you watch, is set in a dystopian future where there is a religion-based autocracy that has taken over most of the United States. Women on the show are second-class citizens being forced to do many things against their will, namely to bear the children of important men in government. Real-life protesters, usually proponents of so-called women's reproductive rights, dress in the handmaid's garb to illustrate how they believe they are being oppressed like the women on the show. They get all decked out in these red dresses and bonnets to make a statement. They show that the bonnets have a hidden meaning. The bonnet is supposed to shield the handmaid's from view, and prevent from seeing what's around them, acting as kind of essentially blinders on a horse. And it reinforces the idea that women are to be kept in the dark, used, and marginalized. It's a piece of fashion, yes, but it is a piece of fashion that says something. Tonight, as we continue through the book of 1 Corinthians, we'll see the Apostle Paul speak to the issue of head coverings in the church at Corinth. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to correct and instruct them on several topics. The main reason he wrote to them was to urge them to be unified in prioritizing the gospel, esteeming to them the wisdom of God far and above the wisdom of man. But he also wrote to them to answer questions they had about certain topics. And so one of the questions that they had was about sex, and whether or not all sex defiled. And we spent three weeks looking at his answer to that question. And then another question they posed was about food offered to idols. And over the course of four weeks, we looked at his answer to that question. And it was nuanced and based heavily upon conscience and how willing someone is to surrender their rights for the sake of others' spiritual well-being. And then tonight, we will see Paul address other matters pertaining to tradition, specifically head coverings. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, looking at verses 2 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 say this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, cu- let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I I pray that we would see clearly tonight what it is you have for us in this passage. We admit that it can be hard to understand at first and maybe after several glances, as I could probably bear testimony. But Lord, I pray that you would, as challenging as this passage is to interpret, help us arrive at the, the meaning of the text and how we are to apply it in our lives. I pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, the sermon title for this week is The One About Head Coverings. <laughs> the One About Head Coverings. And you may call me lazy when it comes to that sermon title, but I tell you, it's hard to come up with a creative title for a sermon like this. I mean, head coverings, long hair, what's Paul getting at in this passage? And tonight, I hope to show you that Paul's concern is not for what is or isn't on someone's head necessarily, but how submission to headship is displayed and why. I'd like to give you three reasons to submit to one's headship tonight. Three reasons to submit to one's headship. Before I do, I want to kind of clarify what do we mean by headship. Um, What I mean by headship is not merely someone who is in authority over you, but within the context of this passage, it must mean the person who is in authority over you in the family and the church. And I get that from clear markers that Paul uses in this passage and the one right after it. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven two, 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. The word now he uses at the beginning has shown us that there's a, a change in subjects from the subject being food offered to idols to now something new. And his use of traditions tells us what the new topic is. These traditions are teachings that Paul passed on to the Corinthians during his time there. And here in verse 2, he commends them, which, if you've been with us through this whole book, is rare, right? I don't think he's complimented the church church in Corinth once in the 11 chapters we've looked at so far. And so this is rare, and to be honest, it's it's a little short-lived as well. Because he goes on to say in verse seventeen, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. (laughs) There we go. That's that's familiar. That's that we see. We recognize that because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. This rebuke is important because it clearly states where these traditions are occurring. It is when you come together, or as he will say in verse eighteen when you come together as a church. ecclesia is the Greek there. It's the assembly. The gathering of the saints on the Lord's day reminds us the church is not a building. It's a people. And it's a people who gather. And he's saying, when you gather, these are the traditions to look to. The context for Paul's teaching on these traditions that we'll look at this week and next is the local church, the gathering of the saints. But an even more narrow context within the church is the family. And we'll see that with our first reason to submit to one's headship and its corresponding verses. Reason one that Paul gives to submit to one's headship. Headship is exemplified, In the Trinity, headship is exemplified in the Trinity. And we get that in verses three through seven. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies, let me pause here. Remember, this is in the context of the church. There are a lot of people who want to badmouth Christianity, but Christianity was in stark contrast to the Roman culture of its day that said women are just to be quiet. It's a good thing for us to just take a moment and just appreciate that Paul says in verse 5 but every wife, who prays or prophesies within the context of a local church, that is the perfect place for a Christian woman to use and utilize her spiritual gifts to contribute to the body of believers. That is in stark contrast from what the culture said in that day. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head was shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. I want to kind of iron out that detail real quick as well. Both men and women are made in the image of God and bear intrinsic worth in and of themselves, regardless of their role. Um, Paul is not saying that men are the image of God and women aren't. To clarify, he says uh, that women and men both bear the image of God in other places where he writes. So he's saying something different there. And it's in the context of what exactly is being shown and submitting to the headship over you. Headship is exemplified in the Trinity. Paul begins by noting a few truths about submission as God designed it. He says, the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ Is God, and that is to say, the Father. These are truths that show a glimpse of what we'll call triune submission. Triune submission. Remember these very important words when I speak on the Trinity. We believe God is one in essence and three in persons. God is one in essence. Three in-persons. That is a very careful way to say that and describe the Trinity. Because when we start to waver from that careful articulation of our triune God, we accidentally enter into heresy. So we want to be very careful with those words. Those words have been passed down to us from generation to generation from generation starting in the early church, when they looked at the whole of Scripture and how the Scriptures identify our God, who is one in essence, three in persons. God is one in essence, or one in nature, if you like. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons, are equally divine, holy, and eternal. They make up the Godhead. But there are different levels of authority in the Godhead. God the Father is the one who begets the Son, as we often memorize in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Son, Jesus, is one who obeys the Father as he is sitting in the garden the night before he would be crucified. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And he communicates to his father, the one who sent him, the one who he obeys. The son inherits authority from the father. As he says in the verse right before the great commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who did he get that authority from? If not the father who looked at his son and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Both the father and the son send the Holy Spirit so that he proceeds from both of them. And we see this identified in two different uh, passages. One that talks about how the father is the one sending the Holy Spirit to the disciples. And then another one where Jesus claims he is the one who will send the Holy Spirit to the disciples. Both send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit obeys. He goes, he came to live among those who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. There are different levels of authority, yet all three persons are co-equal, co-eternal, co-divine. God is one in essence, three in persons, different levels of authority, and yet that doesn't diminish who they are as our God the three persons who make up our triune God. Triune submission is passed down from our God to the family unit. All members of the family share the same intrinsic worth in that they are made in the image of God. Yet they have different roles and different levels of authority, don't they? The husband, the father, he submits to Christ. The wife, she submits to her husband. And if they have kids, they submit, those kids submit to both their father and mother, much in the same way that the Holy Spirit is sent from the father and the son. This is God's good design for the family unit. And Paul wants that to be evident. If nowhere else, certainly it should be evident in the worship gathering, which is why he's concerned about head covering it's good to be reminded that this letter to the church in Corinth is a snapshot of a specific time in history with its own unique culture. Understanding the culture of the original audience is vitally important at understanding the meaning of the text. The culture of Corinth, well, you know this, it was transfixed on man's philosophy, which is why Paul esteems to them the wisdom of God. It was transfixed on pagan idolatry, which is why we spent four weeks talking about food offered to idols. But there were some things going on in that time that the Bible doesn't clearly state, but secondary resources in history tell us about that Roman men sometimes practiced the custom of pulling the loose folds of their toga over their head as an act of piety and worship to pagan gods. There's also information about how there, are, there were pagan temple prostitutes who did not cover their heads and actually cut their hair short to show sexual availability. This is the culture that Paul is speaking into as he's telling the Christian families of Corinth to be recognizably different from the culture especially in how they worship and how they submit to the headship that's over them as it's exemplified in the Trinity. The second reason that Paul gives is that headship is enacted from creation. Headship is enacted from creation. And we see that in verses eight through 12. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. I'm going to stop there. That part of the entire passage, that part of that verse is vitally important to what we're talking about. Let me read it again. That is why, verse 10, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And he goes, because of the angels. Why does he say because of the angels? If there's no more confusing part in this passage, is why the angels, Paul? And it reminds us of the spiritual reality around us. I was reminded that we're not the only ones worshiping at YA worship. I had not thought that about the angels who gather with us in the spiritual realm to do the same thing we're doing, right? Sing songs of adoration about our God. Hear truth from God's word preached. We're not alone. So we need to be reminded of the angels. Remember, he's making an argument from creation. We're not the only created beings that render worship to our God. And so he's saying, yeah, remember the angels. And he might actually even be drawing on how angels in the presence of God, worshiping God, what would they often do? Cover their heads. Because God is holy. God is holy. And so they're designed to worship this holy God. And part of their design is that, yes, they would cover their heads. So Paul's making a connection there. Remember the angels. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Again, an argument from creation. This is Paul's argument for submission to headship from creation. He reminds the Corinthians of the creation account in Genesis. Man was created by God. From the dust of the earth, which is the most fancy way to say dirt, isn't it? He was put to sleep and with a rib taken out of his side, woman was created. She was designed as a helper fit for him. It is only right that she would be made from him. The language there is really beautiful. The Hebrew word for helper used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, reveals the purpose of a wife to her husband. She is one who supplies strength in the area that is lacking in the helped. She is not weaker. She is not stronger. She is not a clone. She is fit for him she quite simply compliments him and i can speak from 6 months of experience of the variety of ways in which i know that to be true and you probably know more even more <laughs> of all the areas i've lacked in my life and had my bride supply strength to those areas it's by god's good design But as we saw in our scripture reading from Genesis 3, God's good design was corrupted by sin, the sin of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And as a consequence for their rebellion, God cursed the rebels. That's what we read. The effects of the sin have been passed down to us so that we are born with a sinful nature. But alongside that, the effects of God's curse on Adam and Eve have also been passed down to us. And just one aspect of the curse on Eve for her sin was that she would desire her husband and he would rule over her. The words of the Lord indicate that there would be an ongoing struggle between woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. This takes the form of an inordinate desire on the part of the wife and a domineering rule on the part of the husband. Eve and her daughters will have a desire to oppose Adam and his sons and to assert leadership over them. But Adam and his sons will abandon the pre-fall order of leading, guarding, and caring for Eve and her daughters and replace it with a distorted desire to rule over them. We've all heard of marriages like this. In fact, some of you probably have seen it up close. right? Maybe mom is the one in charge because dad is passive. He doesn't lead the family like he should, unless you get close and mess with one of his idols. I don't know if you've seen marital conflict up close. Maybe your homes growing up were filled with it. Maybe it was filled with shouting at each other. Or for those broken homes, silence. Regardless of what we witnessed growing up, surely you want a marriage better than that. Surely where does that come from? The only way marriage can be redeemed from the curse is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've done a few weddings as pastor of this ministry, and I always draw the couple's attention to the gospel. For it is there and only there that we can see the the, the true makings of a beautiful marriage. It's God's design for marriage despite each person's sin. Uh, Tim Keller says it this way in his book. If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. Where does humility like that come from? It cannot be found out in the world. That says my my self-centeredness first and foremost, is the the most toxic thing about this marriage. That's an otherworldly humility that only comes from a right understanding of the gospel. In fact, Tim Keller actually goes on to say, do for your spouse what God did for you in Jesus, and the rest will follow. What does he mean by that? Well, What did God do for you in Jesus? He gave up what was most precious to him. I just quoted to you. For God so loved the world, he gave up his only begotten son that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. They would have eternal life. What does that mean for you? As you look forward to be married someday, it means giving up yourself now in preparation for marriage. Right Apply the gospel to your life in real time right now to prepare you for a marriage that looks different from your parents. That means more to some of you than others. For some of you, you had great role models and praise be to God for that. Two parents who love each other in the gospel. How is the gospel applied in marriage? Well, Colossians 3.18 sums up really well. How does this apply Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. What is that if not a reversal of the curse? And at the root of it has to be the gospel. God's power to save us from our sin. The gospel returns a husband and wife to the pre-fall order and restores their God-given roles because of what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross and through the grave. But then Paul gives a third reason for submitting to one's headship. Headship is encouraged by nature. Headship is encouraged by nature. We see that in verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God with the only command given in this passage, Paul says, judge for yourselves. Now, admittedly, it's a rhetorical judge for yourselves, but one nonetheless, which is to say, this should be pretty obvious. This is an argument from nature. Uh, That is one's natural sense of what is appropriate for a man and a woman. Generally, men cut their hair short. Women grow theirs out. This is one way that men and women have been differentiated throughout history. So, is it sin for gr- guys to grow out their hair? Is it sin for women to cut theirs short? Let me illustrate it to you this way. Uh, a few years ago, I had a, a friend who decided he was going to grow out his hair. So that he could cut it off and donate it to Locks of Love. If you don't know Locks of Love, that is a nonprofit organization that lovingly donates uh, hair or receives donations of hair to be able to fashion wigs for children who go through cancer treatment. So let me ask you the question in this dilemma Is my friend a disgrace? And the obvious answer is no. No, because what was his attitude? His heart was set on helping someone who couldn't do anything to repay him. And what is that if not the heart of Christ? I think we must follow the only command that Paul gives in this passage and judge for ourselves. What is obvious? What will show glory to God and avoid disgrace? The principle in this portion of the passage is that men should look and act like men. Women should look and act like women. There's many different ways to do that. Because unlike the culture, we can define what is a man and what is a woman. There are more ways to do that than just one's preference and hairstyle. We should not concern ourselves with the length of our hair, but the attitude of our hearts and how we live out the gospel according to our God-given gender. In addition, I will say this. Uh, I'm as just as much of a student of the a human experience as I am of the Bible, and that becomes very important in living things like this out. What Paul is commanding here. And in my observation, I've seen that today in America, the people I see who are cutting their hair short, dyeing it all sorts of different colors, getting all sorts of strange piercings, God knows where, and tattoos, not that there's anything wrong with any one of those particular things, but the people I see doing that, those are the ones who are creating an identity for themselves with anything they can get their hands on. And they're doing it externally because there's a void internally. much like the issue Paul raises in his context, we should ask, what is going to make us identifiably different from the culture around us? I just submit to you, I think what you'll find is that people who are trying the least to be different are the most unique. The people who are getting internal and less external are the ones who are the most ordinarily beautiful. They let their natural differences speak for themselves as they live in the identity that God has given them. Those people seem the most fulfilled, as it were. Those are just my observations. Paul's reasons are headship is exemplified in the Trinity. Headship is enacted from creation and headship is encouraged by by nature. So where does that leave us? Well, if I can give you an application that flows well with these points as I've articulated them, it would be this. Headship is exhibited in public. Headship is exhibited in public. Here's how we can show our submission to headship. Christian men and women, married or otherwise, should make it obvious that they, they humbly submit to the headship and authority over them. That's our main point for the night. Christian men and women, married or otherwise, should make it obvious that they humbly submit to the headship and authority over them. I thought about it in my own personal study of this passage What about the single Christian women? Who are they to submit to? Who's the head above them? And it's quite simply Christ, right? Maybe if I was back in the context of Corinth, you know, you could speak to some of these younger ladies who are wearing head coverings to show that they're in submission to their father, who is the leader of their household. I can understand that. But today, you're out of your parents' house, right? Some of you. Who do you submit to? especially if maybe you are living in a household with an unbeliever for a parent, who do you submit to? Ladies, you submit to Christ. Men, you submit to Christ. Now, there is a spirit in the culture today cloaking itself in feminism, but is actually an effect of the curse in Genesis chapter three. And it usually sounds like this. I won't take my husband's last name. I don't want the preacher to mention submission at my wedding. We're keeping our bank accounts separate. I'm telling you, that's Genesis chapter three in our day, in our age. So listen, guys, if you see signs of that on your dates with prospects for marriage, I would just say run. That is a mercy of God that he would give you a glimpse of what marriage is gonna be like for the rest of your life. Time to let her go. Friends, when you find someone who loves the Lord and shows it and how they submit to his authority by keeping his commands out of a love for him and what he has done for us, that's the person. That's the person to marry. And when you marry them, live out Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Live out the reversal of the curse by God's grace. What Paul is after, according to verse 10, is that wives would make it apparent that they are under the authority of their husband. For the culture of that day it was a head covering for cultures elsewhere around the globe it's it's other things. but for us in America there are small subtle cultural ways to show that you're married and if I'm just being honest, I really like my ring. I don't know if you can tell I'm always squirming with it. I'm always playing with it. Not like it's a toy, like a top. I don't like that. I don't like when guys just spin their ring and stuff. I like think that's a little little much. But I'm just I, it's still on there, you know. It's like a, it's just always there. And it's encased, you know, it has rosewood and stuff. It's really cool, guys. And I appreciate that Anna Cross took my last name. And not only that, she really enjoys hearing it, even before she was married in some ways, from what I've heard. People teasing her, it's all in good fun. Her money is my money. There's nothing that is hers that is not mine. We had a biblical wedding ceremony that spoke very highly of both submission and sacrifice. It is our aim to live out Colossians 3.18 until Jesus returns or one of us goes to him in glory. That's the way it should be. I know there are some fears about submitting to another sinner. But if that sinner has repented of his sins and believes the gospel, it restores God's good design and can make for a beautiful marriage. And so ladies, as you're on dates and you see this guy that you thought would have been awesome is now revealing that he's a chump because he's not worthy of submitting to, He's not responsible enough. He hasn't hasn't taken responsibility for himself. How can he take responsibility for you? Evaluate that. That's a standard you should hold to. And when you do, and when you do end up marrying that guy, just give him grace that he is a sinner in a restoration process just like you. Guys, you have to remember, you are submitting to your head, Jesus Christ. And where you act out of line, he will absolutely positively discipline you. Ladies, where he shows patterns of acting out of line or crosses lines physically or sexually, it's time to seek the help of a church. Involve a godly lady or two in on that situation, a pastor in the church to empathize, and empower you in that situation. You are not enslaved to that. There is freedom available to you in the gospel of Jesus. Bottom line, show that you're submitted to Christ's authority by keeping his commands. If you get nothing out of this sermon but that, it will be a point well worth taking away. Show that you are submitted to the authority of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by keeping his commands. If he is the Lord of your life, it should show. No one should have to wonder. Exhibit submission to his headship that is visible and obvious. We must all submit to the authority he has over us.